Thank you for joining New Life Fellowship Podcast today. We are a church desiring to expand the kingdom of God by making disciples. We pray that this message inspires you, build your faith, and hope that it will give you perspective to see that our God is moving in your life. Hope you enjoyed the message. Well, good morning, church. Uh, welcome to New Life Fellowship. I'm, my name is Eric No, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. And, uh, um, you know, if you guys didn't know who Brian was, he was uh, a member of our welcoming team, and he was out in the front there every uh, morning, uh, diligent. He was always on time. Um, so if you saw, you, most of you probably at least saw him or have recognized his face, but he would stand at that door and welcome every single person and pass a bulletin to them, and, uh, and he will be very missed. And uh, we actually hope that today's message will be helpful for some of you, um, especially if you knew Brian and if you knew him very well, um, because, uh, you know, we're going to be talking a little bit about hope and how to treasure things in your hearts, even when they're painful and difficult situations. Um, you know, for this week, actually, we're going to be taking a, sh- a little break uh, from our Gospel Project series. Uh, we've been in this series kind of going through the Old Testament, and we actually just started back up uh, two weeks ago, uh, but we're going to take a quick break because we wanted to give you a Mother's Day message uh, and, and kind of something more particular for uh, the mothers. And so we're going to be looking at one of the greatest moms in the history of mankind. Some of you may know her. Her name is Mary. She gave birth to God himself. And so uh, we're going to be studying a, a particular uh, sliver of her life and also going to be looking at other parts of her life and kind of learning from what she uh, did in her life and, and how she was able to overcome obstacles and difficult circumstances in her life. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll just open right up to the passage today. It's Luke chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 41 to 51. Again, that's Luke chapter 2, uh, verses 41 uh, to 51. So if you have your Bibles, please open up uh, with us uh, to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 51. Uh, we have three points for you today. The, the first point is the meaning of treasuring, uh, because Mary treasures certain things in her hearts, and so we're going to talk about the meaning of that. Uh, the second is the method of treasuring. How do we actually go about doing what Mary did? Uh, and then the third is the madness of treasuring, because there is a madness and a chaos to this uh, whole treasuring ordeal, and we will see what that is in a second. So let me go ahead and read this for us. If you would all at this time rise with me if you're able to as we read God's word and we stand because we honor and we we revere God's holy word. So let me go ahead and read Luke chapter 2 verses 41 to 51. Now his parents, that's Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, that is Jesus... When Jesus was 12 years old, uh, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them, and he came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And this is the key. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
Let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for this day where we get to celebrate mothers. At the same time, Father, we ask that you comfort and be with Brian Kwan's family as they mourn the loss of their son, brother, cousin, friend. And God, we pray that you would comfort all of those, that you would be now the wonderful counselor who would go, God, and be with them all. God, we pray that this time together would be beneficial, encouraging uh, mutually, Father, that as we learn about your word, Father, that we would be encouraged and our hearts would be lifted up today. We thank you. We pray this on your son's holy and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, you know, when I was a little boy, um, a lot of you already know this, but I grew up in Hawaii, and Hawaii is very hot. It's hot all the time, and so uh, I would go into these department stores, and one of the things I loved doing was just being in department stores because department stores were oftentimes air-conditioned. So I would just hang out in there as a little kid, and uh, one of my favorite things to do as a little kid, this is like when I'm five years old, is I would go up to the clothes, and I would touch the clothes because the clothes are cold, and my skin's hot, so I would touch it, and I'd kind of rub my face, and I'd kind of put my hands into the clothes, and I'd do these different things. And um, I remember one of the fun games that me and my older brother used to play, his name is Thomas, uh, is we would actually go into the clothes racks and hide inside of them. If you guys know, the racks are kind of this certain, they form this little circle, and so we would feel our way through the clothes, and then we'd hide in the middle, and we'd kind of play games with our parents and with each other. And I remember this one particular incident. We were in the department store. We were hiding, and we were, you know, snickering, and we were playing. And when you're having fun, you sort of lose track of time, which we did. And all of a sudden, like out of nowhere, we start hearing this voice. And this voice starts yelling, Eric, Thomas, where are you? And we just hear it over and over, and it's getting louder and louder. And so we jump out of the, uh, the clothes racks, and we look around, and there's my mom standing there. She has mascara running down her face. Her hair is all disheveled. Her, it looks like she just went to war and back. And she sees us, and I've never seen this on her face before, but she had a mixture of at least three or four emotions. One of them was anger because she had lost us. For the last, I don't even know how long, but she lost us for some time. And so she was angry, but at the same time she was sad, but at the same time she was happy. And she was rotating through all these emotions simultaneously. And so she was crying and weeping, but beating us too at the same time. And then laughing that she found us. And I was like, what's going on right now? As a little kid, I didn't understand what, what my mom went through. But fast forward 30 years, right? I, two weeks ago, I'm standing out here in Higher Grounds Cafe. And I'm, I'm talking to a newcomer, I'm talking to some people, and my wife kind of rudely interrupts me. She's like, where's our son? And I was like, oh, just stop bothering me. Like, I'm trying to talk to people here. I'm trying to, you know, do ministry. And, and so she, she goes away, she's looking for our son. She comes back again, and she's like, where's our son? He's missing. And I was like, just don't worry, he's around here somewhere. And I'm trying to talk to these people. And then another minute passes by, she comes back again, she's like, where's our son? And at that point, I start to actually panic. I started to freak out. I'm like, where is my son? Where is he? And I started looking around, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and we can't find him. And it felt like seven days had passed, but it was only like seven minutes. But we looked, and we looked, and we looked. Uh, some of you may have even known this, because you helped us look for him. Uh, finally, our wonderful Sylvia found him, and he was in the nursery room playing all along. And when we got there... For me as a father, my first emotion was anger. I was like, man, like you, you devilish boy, like how dare you do this to us? But for my wife and for mother, her first reaction was just to cry, was just to weep. 
And it just reminds me of how much mothers uh, have this love for their children and how much, how strong of a bond it is for a mom to have with their child. Let me just pause here for a second. Let me just say, some of you here today may have forgotten how much your moms love you, but they love you tremendously. Uh, They love you so much that God, instead of comparing his love to a father's love, he actually compares his love to a mother's love, which is quite strange, honestly. In Isaiah chapter 49, verse 15, this is what God says. He says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will never forget you. In other words, he's saying, look, even the strongest love on this planet will sometimes forget you. But he says, my love is even stronger than a mother's love. And God compares his love to a mother's love because that's the strongest kind of love you can imagine. You know, my mom, when I, would grow, when I was growing up, or when I was in college, sorry, I would fly from University of Washington back to Hawaii. And I remember when I get off the plane, the first thing my mom would ask me is, what, what, like, have you eaten? Do you want to eat something today? And of course, I'd be like, heck yeah, I want to eat. Let's, let's go. And she would always take me to my favorite restaurant, Zippy's. And if you've been to Hawaii, Zippy's is this little diner. It's not that great of a restaurant, but for me, it's like, it, it, it means home for me. So I, I go there and my mom would order me a dish and she would just sit there and watch me eat. And she would just feel this joy as I'm having joy eating. Because that's what a mother does, right? A mother has so much empathy and love and compassion for their children that they feel what their children feel. Simultaneously, I remember uh, when I was in seventh grade, the first time I tried out for football team. I tried out, I gave it my all, and then at the end of like a week of tryouts, I got cut. And I remember like I was crying, I was upset, but it was strange to me to see that my mom was even more upset and more angry and, and crying even more than I was. Because for her, she felt my pain even greater than I felt my own. And this is the kind of love that a mother has. And with this sort of mentality in mind, let's, let's walk into this story here as we approach our first point, the meaning of treasuring. You have to understand, for Mary and Joseph, they were good Jewish parents. They were going to this feast of the Passover, which all good Jewish people did. They were just obeying the laws. They went to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And unlike our modern day today, they didn't have boats or cars or planes or whatever it is. They had to pack up everything and walk, essentially. They had to make this long journey, this long trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem. And on the way, there could be a lot of things that happened. You could get attacked by robbers or thieves. You could uh, you know, uh, get injured. You could get hurt. Somebody could get sick. There's all of these different things that happen on the way. And so it takes them a great deal of time to get there. They arrive in Jerusalem and they spend the full number of days there that's required of the festival. They talk to friends. They talk to family members. They're having fun. They're relaxing. And then again, they pack up their stuff and they're going back home. And this is the interesting part here. When they're a day's journey out of Jerusalem, okay, they've packed up all their stuff, they're walking, they're walking for 24 hours straight. They look in the caravan, they're like, where's our son? Where the heck is this boy? And you have to think about this. They looked and they looked and they looked. Look at verse 44 and 45. But suppose him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. They began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And if you're a parent or if you're a mother, you know this feeling. I'm sure every single one of you have lost your child. You know how the thoughts that run through your mind, right? Like, was he kidnapped? Was he killed? Was he stolen? Was he hit by a car? Like, what happened? All of these things running through her mind. Here's the incredible part. It's not just a day. They journey back a day, and the Bible tells us that three full days they look for the child. Three full days. 
That's, that's four full days where they didn't know where Jesus was. Imagine they go back to Jerusalem, they're talking to their friends, they're retracing their steps. At night, they go to sleep, and Mary and Joseph are probably fighting, because they're like, you lost a child. No, you lost him. No, it's your fault. And they're fighting, they're bickering. Imagine all the stress, anxiety, and worry that they had. Now, some of you are probably like, well, Mary knew that Jesus was the Son of God, and she knew that He was a Savior, she knew that she couldn't have lost Him. Well, you and I know the end of the story as well, and yet we have anxiety, Right? You know that one day we will be with Jesus. You know that one day we will see the glory of God himself. You know that all the pain and hurt in the world will be made right by Christ. And yet you and I have anxiety. You and I have worry. It's the same thing for Mary. I can't imagine the unbelievable pain, frustration, and hurt, and devastation that Mary went through. In fact, look at the passage. She says it in the passage. If you look at verse 48, this is what Mary says to Jesus. She says, Son... And that word for son means like, boy, you better recognize son. Like, you, you, you better listen to me. She says, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Anxiously in the Greek means this word for like, if you can, it's a word, it's a picture. It's like somebody's mind is being torn apart in four different corners. She's saying, I've been looking for you anxiously. Like, why did you treat us this way? And Jesus then tries to explain to them what happened. He's like, I'm just going to be in my father's house. And, but yet the scriptures tell us that Mary doesn't understand. She does not know why she had to go through all this pain, all this anxiety, all this hurt, all this frustration. She doesn't know why. And she says, Jesus, why did you treat us this way? And at this point in the story, we know that Mary knows that Jesus is a savior of the world. And so she's essentially asking God, God, why did you treat me this way? Why have you done this? I don't understand. But here's the amazing, amazing, amazing part of this story. In verse 51, it says that his mother treasured all the anxiety, all the frustration, all the pain, all the tears, all the hurt, all of it. She treasured it all in her heart. It's not that she just treasured some of it, she just remembered some of it. No, she actually treasured all this pain in her life. Of course, as, as you already know, there are so many of you in this room who have been impacted by Brian's death. There are so many of you who have been struggling with maybe even death in your own families. Maybe even for you, you're sick in your bodies right now. Or maybe for you, you've been suffering at work and you're not getting the job that you wanted. Or maybe for you, you're struggling in your marriages and you're, you're thinking about divorce and you don't know why you're going through all this pain and suffering and agony and you ask God, why are you treating me this way? Mary does not stay at this place of why Jesus are you treating this this way. She ends up treasuring all of these things in her heart. And friends, even though we don't understand why we go what we go through, the Bible tells us that it is possible to not understand something and yet treasure it in our hearts. And that's what we want to look at today. How was Mary able to do that? How was Mary able to take this incident and turn it to something that she treasured in her heart? So that leads us to our second point, the method of treasuring. And so there's three things that I want to talk about, and we'll talk about these in succession. But the first thing, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. The first way to treasure something like this in your heart is by knowing that this life is not about you. Is by knowing that this life is not about you. And let me go ahead and explain what I mean. If you look back at uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 48, Mary sings this song, and it's known as the Magnificat. 
And she sings this wonderful song about who God is and about how much she's praising him. This is after she finds out that she's pregnant. And she sings this. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in my God, not in my job, not in my wealth, not in my status. She's saying like, like the reason why I have joy is because of the Lord, because of His salvation, because He is God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. See, Mary positions herself correctly. She understands that all of life, all of eternity, all of this present, past, and future is all about God and Him alone. This life is not about you and I. It's not about your problems. It's not about yours. It is all about who God is. And if you understand that this life is not about your security, your happiness, your glory, then you will be able to treasure these things. But conversely, if you think this life is all about you and your security, your worries, your, you're going to constantly be in a place where you're blaming and, and, and telling God, why have you treated me this way? You know, my wife, uh, uh, before we left California, she was a kindergarten teacher. Actually, sorry, she was a first grade teacher, but the year before that, she taught kindergarten. And I remember her telling me about one of the incidents at her class. And as you know, kindergartners are very selfish. Uh, they're very, uh, you know, self-centered, narcissistic little things, right? And so they, uh, they oftentimes only think about themselves. And there was this one girl, and we'll just call her Claire, right? Let's just call this girl Claire. That wasn't her name, but let's just say her name is Claire. And she, uh, she was just one of those particular girls who was always about herself. And there was this one time where this boy came in, and it was his birthday. So his mom brought in all these cupcakes. She brought in all these different things. And during the middle of, of, of his birthday party in their class, this girl Claire raises her voice and says, Where are the goodie bags? And my wife is like, what, what do you mean where's the goodie bag? She's like, at every birthday party, there should be goodie bags. And my wife is like, well, the mom didn't bring goodie bags. It's not a big deal. But she's like, no, like, where are the goodie bags? I need a goodie bag. My wife was like, what the heck are you? Like, this is his birthday. Do you realize that? It's not your birthday. But she kept going on and on about this goodie bag. Then when the birthday cake time came out, they brought out this humongous cupcake for the boy, right? It's his birthday. So he gets a big cupcake. She gets a little tiny one. And she starts saying, why is his cupcake bigger than mine? I should get a big cupcake too. And she's stressed and she's anxious and she's worried about all these things. And she's like, why am I not getting the big cupcake? And you see, sometimes in this life, this is what we do, right? You have to imagine that this world, this life, this age, this time that we have on earth is not your birthday party. It's God's. It is God's birthday party. It is His glory. The reason why He created you, the reason why He created creation, the reason why He created the animals, the waterfalls, the seas, it's for Him. It is not for you. Of course God wants you to have joy. Of course God wants you to have these things. But at the same time, all of eternity and time is not about you. And if you begin understanding the world from this perspective, you will be less like this girl. Who says, why this? Why that? Why can't I have this? And you start understanding, wait a second. God has already won the victory. God has already conquered death. God has already made His salvation plan known. God wins at the end of time. And so we can celebrate constantly. Because God wins. And God is winning. Even when your life doesn't seem like it's winning, God is constantly on the move. And He is victorious in every path that He takes. Friends, if you want to live a life of joy, then don't make it about yourself. You know, in the Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren's book, it's, you know, some people are like, oh, it's not theologically heavy. I think it's very theologically heavy. 
the first line of that purpose-driven life. The first line in chapter 1, uh, you know, in the first sentence it says this. It's not about you. This life is not about you. It's about God. You know, when I got married, all of our friends, they, they came to us after our marriage and they said, Man, this was the best wedding I've ever been to. And I was like, wait, well, why? Because our wedding, actually, to be frank with you, I, I didn't think it was that great. It was just okay. Like, we kind of slapped it together. We did our best. Um, but to be honest, it wasn't the greatest thing. But afterwards, like our groomsmen, our bridesmaids, they all came up to us and was like, dude, this was the best wedding I've ever been to. And part of the reason why was because th- we were sort of the first of all of our friends to go in terms of marriage. And this was the first wedding that they had been to where they were truly celebrating the bride and groom. Of course, they celebrate brides and grooms on all weddings, but for them, these were their best friends, and they really wanted to celebrate them. And I'm sure for you, if you've ever been to a wedding celebration where the groom and the bride are your best friends, like those are the best weddings. It could be the worst wedding, but it's probably the best wedding because you are there celebrating them. And when you live this life in celebration of who God is, you too can treasure all these things in your heart. Here's a second thing that we can do. The second thing is you can understand that God is actually a good father. You can understand that God is a good father. The second thing Mary remembered and the thing that we have to remember is, as well is this. That God is, is a good father who desires to give you good gifts. You know in the story Jesus and Mary have this inter- interesting interaction right. Jesus says I, uh, you know uh, 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 Mary says you know me and your father have been looking for you. And then Jesus takes that word father and he sort of places it back on Mary. And he says, yeah, my father was looking for me, but did you not know that I would be in my father's house? Right? So he kind of throws it back at them. And basically what he's saying is, look, did you not know that our father is good? That I would be with my good and loving heavenly father. And even though on the surface our circumstances and our lives may seem like God doesn't care, we have to interpret the circumstances of our lives uh, through the lens of God's character. That he is perfect, good, holy, and just. See, if you begin with the disposition that God is stingy, God doesn't care, then you will interpret all the events of your life through that lens. You will interpret all the fortunes and the misfortunes of your life as God is being stingy. But if you begin with the disposition that God is good, then you too will interpret all events, all circumstances in your life through those lenses. Let me give you an example. Um, you know, if you ever meet my wife, and some of you have, uh, you know that she's one of the kindest, nicest people on the planet. And there's this weird thing that happens oftentimes. People get to know me, and they know that I'm not uh, as kind, as gentle as she is. And so, sometimes I might be telling a story, and I'll say something like, man, I was standing in line at this grocery store, and this person cut me off. Like, they cut in front of me, and then they took, they took my place in line, and then they took like seven minutes, and so I got angry and upset. And usually if I tell people that story and I just say, I got angry and upset, people are like, yeah, because you normally get angry and upset, so that's why you get angry and upset. Because they know my character. But if I tell them and I slap this on, I say, but my wife also got mad, mad too. Then they're like, oh man, that person must have done something really bad. Do you see that? Because they're interpreting that event through her lens. Knowing that she's good. Knowing that she's humble. Knowing that she's gentle. Like when my wife gets angry, you can know that somebody wronged her for real. Because she doesn't get upset that easily. She doesn't get upset that much. And so when you hear that she gets upset at me, you can know she gets upset for really, really good reasons because I was a jerk to her that day. And you see, in the same way, if you begin interpreting all the things in your life through this lens of God is stingy, then I'm telling you, you will, you will come out with this idea that God is stingy. 
If you interpret all the things in your life as God is good, you will interpret all the things... Uh, sorry, if you begin seeing life uh, through the lens that God is good, you will begin interpreting all the things in your life is that God is good. You know, if you're not a Christian here today and you're seeking Christ and you're not a believer quite yet, you know, we want to welcome you and we're so glad that you're here. And one of the things that I want to challenge about your thinking is this. A lot of times for us, we think, oh, all the things in our life adds up to this idea that God is stingy. But I want to tell you, try to start with the other side. Begin by looking at your life through the lens by which God is good and start interpreting your life in that way. Because I'm telling you, when you start with this, this stuff will make more sense. The events of your life will begin to make more sense if you begin interpreting your life through the lens that we, we serve a good and loving Father. How do I know God is a good Father? It's not just simply because He says so. It's because He did so. If you remember in the, in the Bible, Jesus, what, what does He do? He raises Himself on a cross. He dies for your sins, for my sins. And because of that, we can trust that He's a good Father. Because this father gives up his life for you and for me. He doesn't just say, I love you, I care about you, now go do your thing. Jesus says, no, let me prove I love you. Let me go on the cross for your sins. Let me go on the cross for your, your wretchedness. Let me go on the cross and take your punishment for you. And let me show you how good I am. And if you begin interpreting all of life through the cross, I'm telling you, life will begin to make much more sense. And you too, like Mary, can begin treasuring all these things in your heart. Here's the last and final thing under this point is that is this hardship grows us. Hardship grows us. You know, this is just my opinion, but in my opinion, the reason why I think this happened to Mary is because at the end of the story we know what happened. She doesn't she doesn't just lose her son for a moment. She loses her son to life itself. If you remember in the Gospel of John, Mary is there as Jesus is being crucified on a cross. And I believe that this circumstance, this event trained her and built her character up so that she could handle that moment. So that she would not depart from her faith, but rather she would be able to be there in support of her son during that time. In other words, this event, this time in her life grew her character so that she could handle something else at a later point. See, God knows exactly what he's doing and through painful situations, God will grow you in this season of life. And God will use all of the hurt, all of the pain, all the nasty experiences in your life to, to, to grow and to build your character. You know, there's a, uh, he's, he's not a Christian, he's, he's actually an atheist, but his name is Jonathan Haidt. Uh, he's an American so, uh, social psychologist and professor of ethical leadership uh, at NYU uh, Stern School of Business. Uh, and he wrote this really incredible book, it's called The Coddling of the American Mind. How good intentions and bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. Let me say that again. Because the, the title of the book gives away a lot of what he talks about. The coddling of the American mind. How good intentions and bad, bad ideas are setting up a generation for failure. And the basic premise of this book is that college students and young adults today in our age are ill-equipped to face life. And the reason why is because their parents have coddled them so much that they're not able to face life itself. They're not able to handle the pain and circumstances of life. Right? Growing up, right? Uh, you know, even for me too, I grew up a part of this generation where I didn't do anything. I didn't earn anything, but somebody would give me a trophy. Here's a participation trophy. Here's an awesome trophy. And I did nothing, but I got these things. Where my parents coddled us. My parents coddled me. Tried to block me from all pain, all suffering. And what ends up happening is we don't actually raise our kids right. We actually raise them poorly because they're not faced now to, to, to take on life head on. 
In other words, let me say like this. Parents these days are not allowing their kids to experience pain or disappointment. And he says it's causing a generation of college students and young adults who are more sad, depressed, lonely, and angry than ever before. Because when life hits them and disappointment comes their way, they're unable to cope with it. Here's a here's a here's uh, just a quote from his book. It's at the very introduction. He says this, and this is... I, I, I just love this, uh, this, this paragraph that he writes. He says this, From time to time in the years to come, I hope you will be treated unfairly, so that you will come to know the value of justice. I hope that you will suffer betrayal, because that will teach you the importance of loyalty. Sorry to say, but I hope you will be lonely from time to time, so that you don't take friends for granted. I wish you bad luck. Again, from time to time, so that you will be conscious of the role of chance in life and understand that your success is not completely deserved and that the failure of others is not completely deserved either. And when you lose, as you will from time to time, I hope every now and then your opponent will gloat over your failure. It is a way for you to understand the importance of sportsmanship. I hope you will be ignored so you know the importance of listening to others. And I hope you will have just enough pain to learn compassion. Whether I wish these things or not, listen to this, they're going to happen. And whether you benefit from them or not will, not de- will, uh, or not will depend upon your ability to see the message in your misfortunes. See friends, hardships, although they're painful, and I don't want to deny that, of course hardships are immensely painful. But we have to also understand that hardships are good for us and God knows that. Hardships will purify us. Hardships will save us from ourselves. Hardships will strengthen us. But here's the point. The, the, the point is it's up to you. It's up to you to see this hardship as something that you will treasure or something that you will hate and scorn. You know, my professor in seminary says this. He says, experiences don't make you wiser. Experiences in and of themselves will not make you wiser. It is your reflections upon your experiences that will make you wiser. And in the same way, hardships in and of themselves will not make you a better person. It is your reflections upon these hardships. And how you take them and how you receive them is how you will be able to grow. Let me give you a, just a brief example. If you remember the movie Forrest Gump, right? do you guys remember that movie? Amazing, amazing movie, right? Uh, 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 you know, Forrest Gump fights in the Vietnam War, and Lieutenant Dan, remember there's that scene where uh, uh, Forrest Gump starts saving all these people, and Lieutenant Dan uh, is one of those guys who needs saving because his leg got blown off. And so Forrest Gump goes, he picks them up, he saves them, and while he's saving them, he gets shot in the butt, right? And, and that's when he says, I got shot in the butt, right? And... and but remember, fast forward years later, Forrest Gump comes into contact with Lieutenant Dan again. And there's this like really gripping scene where Lieutenant Dan is in a wheelchair. He meets him at a bar. He picks up these two prostitutes. He's drinking himself to death. And there's this pivotal scene where Lieutenant Dan says to him, he says, you should have let me die. You shouldn't have saved me, Forrest. You should have let me die. And you see, for some of us, if we don't receive these hardships well, we can become like a Lieutenant Dan and say, God, why did you do this? You get bitter, you get angry, you get frustrated. It is based on you, friends. You have a choice to make. You can take these hardships and treasure them, or you can take these hardships and scorn God and and become more bitter and more jaded in your life. Here's another illustration, or here's a converse story, right? My friend in college uh, loved playing sports, loved playing basketball, loved playing football. He was so active. One day, he's uh, bringing his, home, his dad home from the airport. His dad is unloading his luggage. He's helping his dad unload his luggage. And this car from a, just randomly off the street, a drunk driver comes and he smashes into the car. 
Right at the last second, the son pushes his father out of the way. His leg gets caught and he, lo- he loses his leg that day. They have to amputate the rest of it off and he, he, he has no leg. He's sitting there in the hospital. Over the next months, people come and they minister to him. He wasn't a Christian before this incident. They minister to him. And in that moment, he makes a decision. He makes a decision to take this hardship and to treasure it in his heart and he becomes a Christian over the next few months. See, hardships in and of themselves don't make you a better person. Your reflections upon these hardships are what will make you a better person. And I'm telling you, you have a choice today. You can, you can live this life saying, man, God has cursed me and become bitter and jaded and you will have no joy. Or you can take these situations and filter them through the lens that God is good and begin to cherish them and begin to see them as something that will grow you in the future. Now let's move on to our third point, the madness of treasuring. Here's an objection that I came up with, and I, th- and I think this may be s- some of you in here. You might be saying to me, you know, sounds nice, Pastor Eric. Sounds nice and tidy. You've given us three points on how to treasure this stuff. But to be honest with you, like what I'm going through right now, you don't even understand. So you telling me these three points doesn't make a difference right now. Because I just feel all this pain and this heartache. I know you're trying to tell me, like, you know, look, think through these things or whatever, but it's just not helping. Because when you're faced with this stuff, it doesn't, it's not logic, right, that flows through you. It's your emotions that are heated, that are going. And so how do you treasure something when all you can feel are your emotions? And you're right, friends, what I'm talking to you about right now is easier for me to preach than for you to do. It's so easy for me to stand up here and give you three points about how to treasure things in your heart, but it is ten times harder, maybe even a million times harder for you to actually go ahead and apply those things into your lives. And I'm not saying that it's an easy thing for you to do. You know, C.S. Lewis, he's one of the greatest Christian theologians, and he wrote this uh, book early in his career called The Problem of Pain. And this book basically does what I just did for you. It lists out all of these different ways in which you can handle the pain and agony in your life. But then fast forward a few years, uh, you know, uh, 20 years later, C.S. Lewis writes another book called The Grief Observed. And throughout that time, in between those 20 years, uh, C.S. Lewis ends up getting married. He got married late in life. And he gets married to this woman named Joy Davidson. And in October 1956, Davidman was walking across her kitchen when she tripped over the telephone wire and fell to the floor, thereby breaking her left upper leg. Uh, At the hospital in Oxford, she was diagnosed with incurable cancer. They just caught it randomly because she had broken her hip, her her leg. And so uh, on July 13, 1960, she passed away from cancer. And this was the first thing that he published in 1961, uh, A Grief Observed. C.S. Lewis published this book, and it was basically his memoirs, his, his writings of how frustrated he was with God. And how much pain. And he even writes that he wrote this book called The Problem of Pain. Where he tells people how to deal with their problems. But in this moment he's like, I, I just can't listen even to myself. When I'm going through this stuff, I, I, I don't know what to do. And this is the madness of treasuring, friends. It's that you know one thing, but when your emotions come into play, there's something completely, completely different that happens in your soul. But here again are just a couple of things for you to hold on to, okay? Just a couple of things. And again, these are not exhaustive by any means. But if you're going through this and you're, you're, you're in this madness and you're trying your best, but here's just a few things. The first thing is this. Just remember that God gave us the Psalms. Just remember that God gave us the Psalms. I mentioned this last week in my sermon, and if you weren't there, you can go ahead and go back and listen to it. But God gave us the Psalms, and He gave us, gave us this ability to lament, to cry out to him because he is a good counselor. 
You know, Psalm 42, it's this amazing, amazing passage. And in the Psalm, King David, or not King David, but the psalmist is writing to himself. And he's asking him, like, soul, like, why are you downcast? Why are you hurting, soul? Like, what, what is it about you that's hurting? And he's talking to himself. And these sorts of psalms will help you in your journey. Open up your Bibles, open up to the psalms and read through them because there are so many psalms of lament that will help you process through your emotions. Because King David, I'm telling you, King David, out of all the Bible characters, has been through a lot. His best friend Jonathan was killed in war. His mentor and the person he respected most tried to kill him for years and years. King David's dream of building the temple was, never came to fruition. His dreams were dashed because God said, you killed too many people in your life. I'm going to take away this dream from you. King David suffered a lot and yet he wrote a lot for us. So that we too at this time can, can, can go into our emotions and begin suffering uh, in a way that where God can hear us and God can process with us. Here's a second thing. Remember, and this is the hard part, remember that God will redeem it all. Remember that there will come a day, friends, where God will wipe every tear. Where God will come down, He will stoop down, He will wipe away every tear. There will come a day where there will be no pain, no anxiety, but there will be joy and everlasting joy. And friends, there will come a day where there is no pain, no fear, no anxiety. And actually, C.S. Lewis talks about this in his great divorce. He says that it's not that God is going to make us forget all the painful situations in our life. He says that rather what God is going to do is He's going to take all the painful things in your life and He's going to redeem it for good at the end of time. And so though you might be processing through this, He says remember that at one point, at one point in time, God will redeem all of it for you. This is a really you know, silly illustration or silly example, but it's like a bad dream. You know how you have a bad dream sometimes? You might have a nightmare and then you wake up from that nightmare but you're so much more grateful because of the nightmare actually? You know what I mean? Like you're like, you, you didn't plan on waking up grateful, but you, you, know, you might have had a terrible dream and then you wake up and you realize it's a bad dream. And because of this painful situation, now you're grateful. You see how the nightmare actually helps you to have positive feelings in the morning. It's sort of similar to that. God is going to take all the painful things in your life. He's not going to wipe them clean and say, forget it all. He's going to say, now I'm going to use it so that eternity is even more joyful for you. And here's the last thing. Remember that God hurts more than you can imagine. I think this is something that we forget as well. Remember that God hurts over your hurts. I think for a lot of us, we think God is distant. God doesn't care. God doesn't weep and mourn with you, but God does. He weeps more than you can imagine. He feels your pain more than you can imagine. And especially for you mothers and for you parents, you know this. When your child hurts, you hurt more than them. And you're a sinner. You're evil. God is holy. He's good. He's just. He's righteous. He's all these things. He's perfect. And when God sees you and He sees you hurting, He hurts as well. You know, I, you know I've only been a father now for two years. But I can tell you, whenever my son falls and gets hurt, like that hurts me. You know, there was this one incident. I, you know, Even before I became a father, I, I've mentioned this to you. But I have a little brother who's 14 years younger than me. And, I, and, and growing up, like, with him, like, you know, I was more, than, I was more of an uncle or father figure than, than a brother. And I remember this one incident where I went to his baseball practice, and I was sitting there waiting for him to get done. This is when he was a teenager. And I started hearing these boys make fun of him. And I started hearing these boys teasing him. 
And I went back home and I asked my mom, what, what the heck is going on? Why are these boys making fun of him? And my mom was like, yeah, like he's, he's been going through a lot because these boys have been making fun of him. They've been calling him fat. They've been calling him lazy. They've been calling him all of these different things. And, you, and your brother just internalizes it. So I went back to that baseball practice and I kid you not, I almost tore those guys' heads off. Because you know what, for, for my brother, he wouldn't even express it to me. Like he doesn't cry, he doesn't weep, he doesn't get angry. Because he just internalizes it. But when I saw him going through that, I, I actually think I hurt more than he did. It felt like they were making fun of me. It felt like they were actually uh, confronting me. It felt like whatever was happening to him was happening to me directly. And again, if you're a parent in here, you know that. That what your child goes through is not something separated from you. It's happening to you. In fact, it's probably even magnified when you go through it. And in the same way, think, friends, if we have a good and loving father, if we have a God who cares and loves deeply for you, would he not experience what you experience? In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is able to sympathize with you and I because he's been through it all. He's been through it all. He lived the life that we should have lived, and he died the death that we should have died. And friends, I pray that this helps you. This just helps you a little bit along your journey as you take these painful situations and you begin to treasure it in your heart. Let me pray for us.